All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church. Um, as many of you know, our teaching pastor, Jeremy Carr, is taking a well-deserved four weeks off. Uh, so for the next four weeks, we'll be hearing from four different speakers. And lucky you, I'm the first. And I say lucky you because if I crash and burn today, we really can only go up from here. So uh, just think about that. Uh, so my name is Michael Stevens, for those of you who don't know me, and I lead the Buff Missional Community on Tuesday nights. And for those of you who don't know me, you're like, yeah, that's Michael Stevens, and that's why we call it the Buff Missional Community. But in reality, we actually used to meet off of Buff Road, and we didn't change the name because now we meet on Gary Street, and the Gary Missional Community wasn't much better, so uh, we don't even have any Garys. So uh, that's, what I, that's who I am, one of the uh, MC leaders. You'll also be hearing from another MC leader um, and another former MC leader in the next few weeks. And I joke a little bit about crashing and burning uh, because as a spiritual leader, you never want to say anything wrong, right? You never want to portray Christ and what he's done for us in any inaccurate manner. But at the same time, you, you have to have the, the love and the confidence and the humility to go up and proclaim Christ boldly, despite maybe your own complacency or your own fears or your own doubts or, uh, or your own pride even. So, um, in fact, in this passage that we're going to look at, we'll see Peter told the early Christians that every follower of Christ must have that same attitude. Um, and we have to have that same attitude and the response to the amazing message of grace that we see play out in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So instead of listening to me tell you how we need to have that attitude, uh, we're going to look at what God spoke through Peter to the early church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-17. through 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find it. It's toward the end. And uh, if not, it's going to be up on the screen above my head. So, uh, But to put what we're about to read into context, I'm going to give you a little bit of background as you guys turn there. I've got it marked. I cheated. So uh, this letter was written by Simon Peter around 64 A.D., and this is the Simon Peter that you guys see in all the Gospels referred to, sometimes as Cephas, sometimes as just uh, Peter or Simon, but Simon Peter. Um, and this is about 30 years, this was written about 30 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's writing to these early Christians in what is now modern-day northern Turkey, right? And this whole letter as an encouragement because he knows they're going through some persecution. So he's writing this letter to them, and if you look in chapter 2 and verse 9, we see that Peter's writing to Jews, and verse 10, we see that he's writing to Gentiles. So he's writing to an ethnically mixed group, yet he addresses in the same way. They're all part of this quote-unquote brotherhood that we'll see in the passage. So this is an ethnically mixed group, but they have at least two things in common. They're all followers of Christ, and they're all being persecuted for holding to these countercultural beliefs. That is, you know, the belief in, in Christ as Savior. So um, he's urging them to persevere, and there's actually a lot of good theology in this book. So we're just going to read a portion of it. So we're going to read First Peter, starting with chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read 2, verse 17. So read with me. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So let's pray that we uh, receive something from this text today. If you guys want to pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for our ability to come here and worship you in singing and in praise and through hearing and digesting what you've written to us through Peter. I pray that as we listen, read, and contemplate this passage of Scripture, that your Spirit work in us and give us the mind to hear what you've spoken to us and the heart to accept it with joy. Thank you for your unending love that gives us hope and joy, and we thank you that you shattered the expectations of the world with your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'll start off with a story. Uh, I grew up a Christian. It was actually Assemblies of God, so if any of you guys know that, it's pretty charismatic, right? Um, In fact, many of my family members are, are actually ordained in the Assemblies of God, so there are many ministers in my family. So naturally, growing up, I had said the prayer, you know, Jesus, will you come into my heart, before I even can remember. And then, like a, well, like a good Christian, I rededicated my life many times just in case. And I was never really one to talk about my faith. In fact, I, I just kind of thought, hey, that's, that's between me and God, right? But I still prayed that I would be this light, right? I saw myself as this light that somehow, when I walked into a room, even though I never talked about my faith, right, I would walk into a room and the exuberance of Christ would somehow seep through my pores. That's, this is what I thought was happening, right? Uh, and I thought that my very presence in somebody's life was somehow ushering in the Holy Spirit to work on their heart. Uh, and at the same time, though, I, I didn't really want to be challenged. I wanted to serve this God. I wanted to say, like, hey, God, I accept you into my heart. And if life is a scale, I'm going to have 51% good deeds, so I'm good, right? So I'm still in the graces of God because I'm mostly a good person. Well, this kind of uh, worldview went on for a little while until one day I'm with a friend, and I'd known this friend for probably a couple months now. We're still getting to know each other. We're out. We're just having dinner. And the subject of faith came up. And I remember saying, well, it's the subject of faith. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? And 
she said this. Oh, I, I didn't realize. I mean, I, I never would have known if, if you didn't say anything. So you can imagine I was shocked, right? What happened to this, like, seeping out of pores and weird imagery that you're thinking right now? Like, I, I literally, I, I was just absolutely floored. I said, how could you not have known that I was a Christian? And that's kind of what I want to ask you guys today. Because this is a friend of mine who I'd known for a couple months, but we all are kind of like that, right? We all, we all have this, this God that we serve. We all think that we want to be lights. We want to right, preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words to quote that old saying. Um, but in reality, if people looked at your life today, even your closest friends and coworkers and colleagues, would they know that you're a Christian? So that's, that's where we're going to go with this today. Uh, and you might be asking then, well, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to just walk around, you know, talking about Christ or, or get a tattoo or something so that people know without me saying that I'm a Christian? Well, actually, it's not an impossible standard. And we see in this very passage that we just read that God is telling us exactly how we're supposed to respond to his love, regardless of the cost to us, and more importantly, as a response to his life-giving grace. So there's a lot in this passage, and we can honestly spend several weeks dissecting it, but today we're going to focus our attention on this. And this is going to be the main point that, we're, that we want to leave with today, that the gravity of the gospel calls us to live to a radical standard. And this is a, this is a theme that we see throughout this chapter, throughout the book of Peter, and throughout the entire Bible, and we're going to break that down today. But like I said, we want to walk out knowing that the gravity of the gospel calls us to live to a radical standard. Specifically, we're going to learn three things from this, from this text, and we'll discuss each point. We'll see how the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with radical love. We'll see how the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with radical confidence. And we'll see how the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with radical humility. So we'll start with radical love. If you're taking notes, it's point one. So... Uh, so we're going to start with this one. This is the easy one, right? So we look at First Peter 2, uh, we look at verse 17, right? Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, love the brotherhood, that's easy. So what's, what is that telling us? We already discussed what the brotherhood was. We discussed that the brotherhood was a mixture of Jews and Gentile believers, and so some of you might be like, well, it says love the brotherhood. Does that mean I only have to love the men? Or does that mean like only the men are actually Christians? No, it doesn't. So that's easy. We're supposed to love everybody. And we see that. We see that in our missional communities, right? We see each other loving other Christians very well. We get in our, our missional communities. We're there to encourage each other. We're there to live life together. And that's loving the brotherhood. So congratulations. You don't feel bad yet. So, you also see, and uh, if you went back a little bit, chapter 1, verse 22, Peter also says to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, if you can liken this to maybe um, in the military when you're deployed, because if you remember, these people are being persecuted, and these, these other Christians are all they have. So, it's similar to being in the military, being deployed in a combat zone when you only have your other you know, teammates to depend on. You only have your other uh, brothers and sisters in arms. Think band of brothers. And, and that gives you a good imagery of how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to live 
when times get rough. We're supposed to live that all the time. So uh, this is specifically talking about that. So what does that mean in our church? I know some of you are thinking, but that guy who plays the electric guitar, he's a little hard to love. The guitar is a little loud, and, and uh, yes, you have to love Zach, too. You just have to do what I did and just ask him to play acoustic. So if we look at verses 1, 12, 15, and 17, though, Peter's telling us to put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He tells us to keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers and to do good and to honor everyone. So those are all ways of loving others. You see that not only are we not to do bad things like slander and be envious and deceive people, but we're to do good things. Directly, Peter says to honor everyone, and not just those who honor you, and not just those who are easy to honor. He's exhorting these Christians not to retreat into a ghetto and live in their Christian circles to avoid the persecution. What he's saying is go out there. Go out in the middle of a community who doesn't appreciate you. Go out into the middle of a community who might even be persecuting you and continue to do good. And when they speak against you, and when they come down on you and criticize you, and when they punish you for it, do it even more. Because that's what the love of Christ is. That's radical love. So if you don't believe me, look again at verse 17. He even goes so far to say, honor the emperor. And it doesn't seem odd until you consider two things. One, that this letter is an encouragement to believers who are being persecuted in this area, right? And two, the emperor to whom Peter refers is Nero. And Nero was a young, red-headed, angry, red-headed, angry ruler who was known for persecuting Christians. And in fact, just a few years after this was written, many of these Christians died for their faith. So even though they were experiencing grief for their convictions, Christians were still expected to honor everybody. And we see here that Peter even used an extreme example of honoring the emperor, the very person who's persecuting you, to get his point across that we're supposed to have a radical love and honor everybody. So do we do the same? I mean, we talked about this a little bit. As a church, we do a pretty good job of loving each other in our missional communities. But what about outside of these circles? How are we loving our community? And are we serving our community with love despite their disagreement with maybe our premise? So uh, two weeks ago, a classmate of mine had some car trouble, right? She had a final the next morning, and she either needed a jump start or a ride to school at 5 a.m. to get to this final, right? And she posted on Facebook, Unfortunately, somebody that was near her was able to help her. But it got me thinking, like, there should have been a fight over who got to help her. Every Christian that was friends with her should have been like, I can help. I want to be there. I want to serve. I know it's, you know, 5 a.m. I know I'm going to have to drive half an hour to get there. But I'm going to be there because that's what radical love is. That's, that's serving one another. Well, that's easy, right? She's, she's a Christian. It's, it's a little bit easier sometimes to serve Christians. But then we think of, here's an example that everybody hates, moving. We have so many people in this community that are transient, right? we got so many people going to med school, military, all these things, and they're coming in and they need help moving. And it's a horrible thing that nobody likes to do. But we as Christians should be the first ones to raise our hands saying, hey, I'll be there, I'll help you. I don't want anything in return. I want to be there because I want to show the love of Christ. So then, one final example that's going to put us all to shame here is the big ice storm that came through here. 
So when this ice storm happened, I, I think most of you were probably here, there were trees down, damage everywhere, right? And there were there was a lot to be done, a lot to be cleaned up, essentially. And who was going around knocking on people's doors, asking, hey, do you need help to clean up? It wasn't us. It was a group of Mormons here in Augusta who were going around absolutely with no strings attached to say, I don't want to talk about anything. I don't want to take any money from you. We won't accept any gifts, but I want to help you clean up. I want to go help you. And they're going to the elderly's house. They're going to the widow's houses. They're going to single mother's houses, people that can't clean their own yards. And they're saying, I'm here to help. And it wasn't so that they could get some sort of self-righteousness out of it. It wasn't so that they could get something out of it. It was because they had a higher motivation, right? And that's what we need to be doing. And I know some of us were out there doing that, but by and large, the church, our church and the capital C church, we need to be seen that way, despite what people think about us. I mean, look at the Mormons who oftentimes get no respect. They're often criticized, no credit, and they're still going out there being like, you know, I know what you guys have been saying about me and about my beliefs, but I'm still here to help. I'm still here to show love. And so that's what we need to be doing. But to have that kind of radical love, it takes a radical confidence. So we move to our second point, that the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with a radical confidence. So if we look again at verses 5 through 11, we see that we are to have the confidence in our faith, and not only that, but confidence in our faith admits persecution. Just as Jesus was a living stone rejected by men, the scripture says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We also see that it says, whoever believes in his name, that's Jesus' name, will not be put to shame. So you might be asking, will not be put to shame? Wait a second. The passage says believers will experience persecution, and I just told you that a lot of them died for their beliefs. So what do you mean that they won't be put to shame? Well, that's an easy one, so we won't spend so much time on it. But what's being referred to here is not being put to shame on earth. Instead, this passage is affirming our inheritance. It's giving us confidence that our existence and our person are not limited to the short experiences of this life. I think that's something that we've all heard over and over again. In fact, your Bibles might indicate this with a footnote or maybe extra indentation or bold-faced letters or words, but verses 4 through 8 here, Peter's actually quoting Isaiah 53. And the readers of this letter, at least the Jewish readers of this letter, would have known that. We, they, would have seen, they would have seen this and they would have said, hey, that's, that reminds me of something, and it's Isaiah 53. Well, if you go back to Isaiah 53, it speaks of the life of Christ many decades before Jesus ever came to earth. And Peter's saying, so by doing this, by quoting this, Peter's saying, yes, I was an apostle of Jesus, and yes, I was an eyewitness to his life, but even if you don't trust what I say, trust this. Trust that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Be confident that he's paid for your transgressions, and be confident that even though you may suffer for a season, it's nothing that Christ hasn't endured at least a hundredfold, so that you can have an intimate and eternal communion with him. So further in verse 11, we see the author using imagery of exiles and sojourners, right? He's trying to describe our place on this earth. He's saying, just like most of the people in Augusta, right? They're not here forever. You're transient. We as believers are transient here on this earth. And we're supposed to be living to something greater. We're supposed to be focused on this eternity, and we can't get too bogged down in what we're doing now. 
So that, that reminds us that in the end, we belong to Christ. So the confidence that we get from that frees us from our own fears and our own doubts, and it gives us the courage and hope to face those who oppose us because we know there's something greater. So the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with radical confidence, even in the midst of persecution, because of your beliefs. Now, most of us in the United States don't experience the sort of persecution that these early Christians endured, right? I mean, they're, they're being tortured, crucified, killed for their beliefs. Uh, and in fact, Peter, just a few short years after writing this letter of encouragement, telling everybody to persevere, was crucified in Rome. He was actually crucified upside down in Rome. And the reason why he was crucified upside down is because it was really his choice. Because he thought it would be too honorable to die in the same way that his Savior did. So we've got Peter, the guy who writes this letter and says, I know you're going to endure persecution, says, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And just a few years later, is crucified for his own beliefs. So it was obviously something that he believed in. Now even today, in other parts of the world, religious persecution still it's still a thing. It's still prominent. You've got, if any of you have been following the news, you've got ISIS in Iraq going through town to town, village to village, killing anyone who's not a Sunni Muslim. And in fact, they're they're also killing, you know, they're also killing Shia Muslims or killing Christians. And I read a story just this morning before I came here about how in Syria they've actually crucified eight Christians. They literally hung them on a cross for everybody to see because they wanted to say, if you don't agree with us, if you don't agree with Sunni Islam. This is what happens. And they, they labeled them as apostates because these were former Muslims who converted to Christianity. And they want everybody to know. And that's not the only example, right? Two weeks ago, a story came out of Kenya that has been happening for a while, but it finally was published, right? We've got, there's a militant group with ties to al-Shabaab who's going through villages in Kenya, going home to home, and asking people straight up, are you a Muslim? If the answer is no, they're executed on the spot. If the answer is yes, in some cases there have been reports where they say, well, do you speak Arabic? And if they don't, they're shot anyway. Because they say, well, how can you read our holy scriptures if you can't read Arabic? So this is, persecution is still going on. And in the, in the light of these extreme examples of violence, we in the United States like to sit, or sit back and say, well, persecution doesn't really apply to us so much, right? And before I give examples, well, let's go here. We're incredibly fortunate to live in a place where we're free to express our religious beliefs for the most part without any fear of our life or safety. However, expressing your beliefs publicly in a largely secular culture will in fact render great opposition to it. And before I give you examples, I want to make it clear that while I'm not equating the violent deaths of these early Christians to our first world struggles today, the Bible still tells us how we can face this, this opposition to our beliefs, and we handle it the same way, no matter if it's, if it's really extreme like here, or like in Iraq, or if it's opposition we face today, the principles are the same. The Bible says that we're still going to face opposition to different degrees, yes, but the response is the same. So opposition to Christianity in the U.S. today typically comes as a condemnation of Christian beliefs uh, by, say, the popular media. They typically, or oftentimes I've seen, uh, depict Christians as kind of soulless, uneducated, hyper-conservative rednecks and, or soccer moms who are too concerned with other people's lives or their own appearance of having it all together, right? 
Christianity also sees a lot of pushback from this movement of relativism, that no one can make an absolute truth claim, that somehow uh, because we say that we believe in Christ, it's okay, but we can't, we can't try to win souls because that's saying that's the only way, right? And in an enlightened world, we all know there's multiple ways to God, right? Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, and if you're a Christian who wants to stand up for that, then you'll receive pushback from it. So, and there's, there's one more that really, I think, hits close to home for a lot of us because a lot of us are, a lot of us are med students or working out at SRS scientific communities. A lot of us, um, there's a pretty well-educated room. Uh, most, I think, of the people in here have been to college, have been around uh, professors and, and very smart people. Regardless of where we are in life, in life we, we've been around some very smart people. And there's kind of this push in science to discount anything spiritual because of a lack of evidence. And now, while I don't believe that a lack of evidence is actually a valid argument against Christianity, you will, at some point, and I guarantee it, lose the respect of somebody because of your belief in something so primitive, right? You're going to lose somebody's respect because they're going to they're see you as... Well, I thought he was a smart guy, but how could he believe in this? That's so out there. That's so, that's so primitive, and that's not the way the world works. So while the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with radical confidence, we also need humility to do so. So the third point is the gravity of the gospel calls us to live with a radical humility. So remember, when God was contemplating how he's going to come to earth... Right, because I assume this was a thought he had. He could have just as easily decided to show up as some sort of invincible, lavishly ornate being that couldn't experience any pain or any temptation or any suffering. But instead, how did God choose to come to earth? We know that he came as Jesus, right? He took a form of a human so that in all humility he could sympathize with us. He willfully experienced that temptation, great suffering, and unimaginable anguish in order to save people people that rejected him. So we look at that and we like to say, well, how humble of him. That's great. And and we've heard it so many times that it kind of starts to lose its effectiveness, right? We've heard, okay, Christ came down as a human so he could identify with us. He, He humbled himself. That's great. So to kind of bring that back into perspective, I want you to consider this. Before he was ever tempted, before Jesus was ever persecuted, Jesus was a baby, and Jesus was like a newborn baby, right? And so we're, if we think of this big picture, we've got this great God of the universe, right? The one who spoke light and matter and space into existence by his word became a baby. And newborn babies soil themselves. They can't express their needs or their emotions articulately. And they have limited ability to even see when they're born. And they have absolutely no capacity for higher thought. And babies are awesome, right? So, but, but imagine it. Like, sit there and imagine reliving, let's just say, your junior high school years. Imagine going back to being a teenager completely dependent on your parents, full of hormones, full of emotions, and completely unsure of who you even are. Like, I'm a human, and I don't even want to relive that. You know, but then you got to think like God, the God of the universe, went and He did us one better. He became a baby, and then He went through the high school, the the awkward high school years. I mean, that, that's got to be terrible, right? So that would take great humility, because 
I'm serious, I, I really wouldn't want to do that. So he took godness and glory and made it human. He made it flesh and blood so that we could identify. So he experienced all that so that in the end we can't say, well, I mean, yeah, he did all these great things, and yeah, he did miracles, and yeah, he lived this life as an example to us, but I mean, he was God, right? It was easy. Like he, he was God. He wasn't tempted. He, he didn't have to suffer, but in fact, he did, and he, did, and he gave up a lot more to do it than we will ever know. So that... I would call radical humility. So what do we learn from this, right? Do we, are we supposed to just be humble? Like, hey, go be humble. Yeah. Yeah, you are. But about what? So how about this? Why did Peter write this letter to begin with? And he wrote this letter to begin with because humans and all of our fallenness were still persecuting other people for their beliefs. And they were still not able to love one another despite what they were doing to each other. They were still unable to turn the other cheek despite Jesus saying it over and over again, Right? The Gentiles and the emperor were still threatened by Christianity and therefore decided that, of course, the only logical action to take was to shun and persecute those that didn't agree with them. So if we as a human race weren't flawed in our hearts, this letter would have never had to have been written. There would have been no need, right? Well, now we've got a problem, right? We have all these Christians who are supposed to live differently, we've been talking about, and we're supposed to not do these things. So since... since we're supposed to not do these things and these things are bad, then that makes us better, right? Well, actually, it, it doesn't. Sorry. Uh, a radical humility levels the moral playing field. It reminds us that there are plenty of non-Christians who are just as moral, if not more moral than us, and it also reminds us that there are plenty of Christians who aren't very moral at all. It shows us that we are all inescapably flawed. And it allows us to realize that Jesus came to save us just as much as he came to save those who are persecuting Christians in Iraq right now. It reminds us that we need Jesus just as much as those who are crucifying others for their beliefs. I think that's uh, a sobering thought to think that. Like he didn't, he didn't come to like kind of save us, but mostly save those other guys. He came because he said, you all need me and you all need me the same. So here I am. All of us need rescue, and all of us need forgiveness. So what does it all mean? What does living to a radical standard even mean to us, and how is it supposed to play out in our daily lives? Well, one, and first of all, we see that there's a fine line between living to a radical standard as a response to the life-changing grace and work of Christ and trying to be moral to kind of earn our salvation, right? We have to make that distinction clear. We're not to live with radical love, confidence, and humility so that somehow we can get back into the good graces of God and get to heaven. Instead, we're supposed to live with that that radical love, confidence, and humility as a living sacrifice. It says it right there in the scripture, as a living sacrifice, because it is pleasing to God and because he commanded it. And when we say it's pleasing to God, some of you might be thinking, well, wait, wasn't that Paul that said somewhere in there that our best works are filthy rags to Christ? And if you look at that in context and you look at this, if you look at them out of context, it seemed to disagree. If you look at it in context, you, you see that Paul's saying, if we're using our, our works to earn our salvation, then it is nothing more than filthy rags. And Peter here is saying, if you're using your works as a loving response to the gospel, to what God has done for you, it is pleasing to him. It is a spiritual sacrifice to him. So then we go on and we say, well, if you're living this life, people will notice. So if you 
look at your life today and you think of the people around you, will, will people see something different? I mean, just think of some people you know. Will they look at you and say, hey, there is something different about this person, you know? I see it. I see a radical love. I see a radical humility and confidence. Or will they be like my friend several years ago and say, oh, I would have never known you were a Christian. So are you truly being a light? Are you acting as an exile and an alien who keeps taking abuse for your faith but has the confidence and humility to respond with love? Do you have, do you have the desire to reach others? I mean, a manifestation of this love, confidence, and humility will play out in the way you're trying to reach others because you have to have enough radical love to want to see them saved, right? Do you have enough radical confidence to know that what you believe is truth? And do you have enough radical humility to get over pride in your image or on the opposite end of the spectrum, your own perceived inability? And that's a big one, right? We think... We don't want to ruin our relationship with people, right? We we don't want to we don't want to feel awkward, and and we don't want to be seen, we we don't want to be viewed as someone less intellectual or someone less informed or less enlightened because we're trying to win someone else for Christ. But what kind of humility is that? That's pride getting in the way, and it's also not putting another person's need ahead of your own. If you looked at Philippians two, it tells you what. Christian humility is all about. And it's saying, considering other people more than yourself. So what's more important? That I go and try to save my friends, try to give them their only hope of salvation, lead them to Christ? Or is it more important that they don't see me as, you know, maybe not as smart? And that's kind of, uh, it's kind of something that we all have to wrestle, wrestle with, quite honestly. So if the gravity of the gospel calls us to live to a radical standard, your heart should be breaking for those who don't know Christ, and you should be doing everything you can to help them know that joy and that peace and that love that comes with Christ in both your words and your actions. You're called to be a light, and in some cases, you might be the only light that these people ever see. So as we leave today, I want to challenge you with this. Take a moment and think of that joy you have in Christ. Think of the confidence and the love that you have because what he's done for us. And now I want you to think of a friend, a classmate, a coworker, maybe uh, another mom at the at homeschool, daycare, any, anybody that doesn't know Christ. And now think of just this one person, and that's the person who I want you to have in mind. That's the person you're going to try to reach. And this might be different to different people. It might be a simple, say, invitation to dinner, maybe an offer to help them in their yard, or offer to babysit their kids. Maybe it's an invite to church, or even just like a deep, candid conversation about their life, like, hey, how are you doing? How can I help you? You don't have to drop any theological bombs on them, but you should be serving them with love, confidence, and humility. So right now you might be thinking, well, that's an awkward conversation, but how terrible would it be if we and our church and our missional communities were on this boat in the middle of the ocean and we're standing here life rings in hand and we're seeing people drown all around us, people that we claim to care about, but we're too scared or we're too timid to just throw it out there and offer them Christ and say, hey, let me tell you, let me tell you how to get here. Let me tell you the joy we have on here. And even if you think, 
even if you think this eternal damnation and, and hell is just too primitive for you, you're still robbing them of a joy, the joy that you have as a Christian in everyday life, right? And we should be wanting, we should be so filled with this joy that we should, it should be seeping from our pores, right? It really should. And we should be going and saying like, man, life is a little rough. We're being persecuted, but let me tell you why I still have this joy. Let me tell you why I can still go out and serve and why I can still go out and be confident that this is temporary. Why I can have the humility to go and say, hey, it's not me, it's God. And just a a, a side note on all this, Every time you see them say why we've been rescued and why we've been saved, it's always so that, so that you can proclaim the grace and the glories of God, so that you can point to God. So that in itself should be motivation. We've all been called and saved for that very reason. So if you're not doing this, um, I, would, I would encourage you to, to read this, digest it, seek it out, pray, because... If we're on there, on the boat, not throwing those life rings out, I can really think of nothing more unloving and nothing more self-involved than that. So I don't mean to make anyone feel bad today. We have a lot of joy in Christ, and there's a lot of grace there. So um, we'll uh, close in prayer here, and the band will come back up, and we'll we'll, uh, have a few ways to respond. So if you guys want to pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for... uh, Giving us your word, thank you for speaking uh, to us through Peter uh, in, this, in the Bible. I pray that, you know, I was articulate. I, I pray that despite my own, my own flaws that you were able to speak to hearts today. I pray that you challenge us really to take this message seriously. And I pray that you help us go out there and just really be lights for you. That we live to this standard and that we change our actions, not because we think it's going to save us, but because because we love you and because we want to do things that are pleasing to you. Uh, Just thank you for this day, Father, and, and keep us all safe today. And we praise you in your name. Amen.